0: Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast with me, Jonathan Puddle. Today, I've got episode 109 for you. My guest is Tiffany Bloom. We talk all about her new book, Pray Tell, why we silence women who tell the truth and how everyone can speak up. I have read this book. It is a very, very important work. In this episode, you're going to find us talking about why men get excused for their behavior and why women get blamed for it. And then why women don't speak up about the things that happen to them and what usually happens when they do speak up. Why we don't believe women, why we silence them, why we don't listen. Uh, so it's a sobering conversation, but there is a lot of really important information here and I would recommend it for everybody. I would also recommend you grab Tiffany's book, which you will find linked in the show notes. If you would like to read the text transcription of this podcast, you can find that at jonathanpuddle.com podcast show notes as well. You'll find a link there and you can see the text version of this in case you are hearing impaired or or English isn't your first language or whatever situation might propel you to want text. Let's get into the show. Tiffany, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to get to chat to you today.
1: Oh, thanks so
0: much for having me. My pleasure. I have been Uh, sitting furiously reading through this book as quickly as I can. Um, But I'm not a speed reader. And so I always am in this quandary. I have to read deeply or I can't read true to myself. So I'm about halfway through and I'm loving it. It's painful. It's true. It's good. Thank you for doing this. Bravo.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It is definitely not a stocking stuffer. So I can understand why it would take a little bit more time to dive into that when you're reading about all the cultural icons of the 90s and early 2000s that so many of us know and being able to see it through a lens that we might not always look through. And uh, it's one that I think wherever we stand, whether we follow Jesus or not, this is an issue, the imbalance of power where women are treated as second and subjugated and silenced and slandered, reduced to nothing is a conversation we have to have. And it's a conversation for both men and women. So thank you so much for reading
0: it. My pleasure. And honestly, I was going to say this to the end, but I'm going to say it now because it's relevant to what you just said for men and women. It's very rare that I read a book that I would say every single human needs to go and read. And I would say that's relevant for, for this book. I mean, in this cultural moment, everything else going on, I, I was trying to think of a category of people who wouldn't benefited from reading and I couldn't come up with any.
1: Oh, I completely agree. Completely agree. It's been, and it's been beautiful to hear, um, to hear people say, hey, I read this and plowed through it, told my mom what happened to me, and now we're pursuing um, litigation against my former high school principal. Or, hey, I bought this for my worship leader. Or um, mothers buying it for their college-age sons. Come and then those sons being like, wow, I needed this. Like, this shape changes everything for me. So um, I'm excited. I'm excited.
0: That's so good. I want to hear you talk about the content more, but I wonder, if first, you just tell us a little bit about yourself um, and and what brought you to bring this to us
1: yeah so for those of you who can't see me which is all of you besides mr podcast uh, which is <laughs> the most clever i mean that's why i've been saying it. are you calling it podcast podcast i oh, that's the podcast it's it's genius let's be real i mean it's just too good i don't know what when you thought of that i bet the most cheeky smile creeped across your face
0: that is exactly what happened and i figured it would be one of the world's biggest missed opportunities if I didn't do that.
1: 100%. 100%. So I am a writer, a speaker, a podcaster. I live in the Seattle area, and I am passionate about the intersection of justice, women, and faith. Um, I've spent most of my adult life discipling, speaking, serving, and writing to women. Um, I served with the FBI Innocence Lost Task Force to address um, sex trafficking just in the Seattle area. Um where can you create John School to address men who pick up women with Crime Stoppers, um, which is a national organization, uh, creating programs that walk alongside women who are transitioning out of um, shelters and different things like that. So in one way or another, my heart has been for women. And um, so often we can feel like the strong women get it and the weak women don't. But the reality is we live in a society and a culture where all women are often seen as second, and they're often seen as worthy of being the scapegoat when a man abuses his power. So when I found myself in a situation where I spoke truth to power, which was an unpopular truth, I discovered that I was disposable, and the man who abused his power at a woman's expense was seen as indispensable. So as I grappled with the professional, societal, spiritual, financial uh ramifications of speaking up it really opened my eyes to how this is not an issue that happens in a vacuum i i can't name one woman in my life or in my world or in media or anywhere in especially in the church who hasn't experienced some sort of silencing now i don't mean silencing just of sexual misconduct which i do talk a lot about in praytel, p-r-e-y um but really the idea of the imbalance of power where a woman's loyalty reputation body time or space is exploited. And so, as we discover how these things happen and how it's advantageous for the men in our world to keep that ball moving down the court and to continually um, use women as a scapegoat and treat women as second and um, blame women for their choices, we realize that that is not the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is whole and good. And there is reciprocity and mutuality in its DNA. So that is why I wrote it. And it really has just been out of my own personal experience of walking through a hard system and feeling like I would lose everything. And honestly, I did. I mean, honestly, I was a breadwinner for my home. I, um, I can't imagine where I would be professionally if that hadn't derailed my career. And research shows that this issue, this abuse of power at a woman's expense is the leading factor to determine a woman's success professional career and financial standing in life so it's a pretty dangerous issue that we're talking about one that affects every woman and it's not only on women to solve
0: yeah seriously and, and every woman i love i love the way you wrote i think in the introduction 50 percent of the human population yeah and i underlined that because something about that again just like it uh, just punched me and i was just like yeah. right 50 percent of those made in god's image yeah experience this that's right one of the imbalances that you talk about early on is this thing about how like the onus is kind of more on women to avoid sexual abuse you know by not dressing provocatively and doing all these things than it is on men to actually control themselves
1: yeah Yeah. Isn't it interesting? The Greco-Roman influence of the first century really shaped the church rather than the church shaping the culture. And so the early church fathers, they adopted this belief that women were deformed men and women were inherently evil and untrustworthy and dishonest at heart. And if you were to bed them or lay with them, you were allowing that evil into your life. You were giving yourself to lustful desires at her request. It was the woman, right? It was the woman who did this to you. So that, that cut wind in the early church, even though the whole life of Jesus, we see quite the opposite. We see women emboldened, unleashed, and empowered to walk in ministry and their aptitude and gifts and skills and abilities were celebrated and elevated to leadership positions. But we take and weaponize these household codes of Paul and several stories in the Old Testament to say, this is how it should be rather than looking at Genesis one. And then again, the life of Jesus and the vision he's cast is where we can walk and where how we can live and how we can uh, occupy spaces. So you think of that Greco-Roman influence and then you fast forward to the time of the printing press where this idea and Martin Luther really camped on that women, a woman's place was in the home and the reformation of the printing press, really, really interesting timing. <laughs> um, uh, but where women were, uh, the, the apex of the Christian life was to be a mother and to be a wife. And that so it limited their leadership, it limited their voice, and it limited their power. And then you take this into that modern day and how we've architected purity culture after the rise of the sexual revolution in the 70s and the 80s. And it swung the pendulum so far that instead of visioneering what God created as holistic and being able to have the hard conversations and seeing men and women as equal, we once again demonized a woman's body. We took that patriarchal structures and scriptures and really applied them to a modern day where the internet was prevalent, where boys were given this free pass and told, especially in church culture, that it's, you know, if you can keep it together, if you can keep it in your pants and if you can hold it together, then you'll be blessed with a smoke and hot way. And many of the girls were told, you know, modest is hottest and it is on you. We're talking about 13 and 14 year old girls, aren't we? Young girls placed with this burden of shame and guilt that if a man were to stumble if a man were to even just have a double take and look at them that it was their fault that they did something to deserve it. So really, we combined the narrative of rape culture with purity culture, same side of the coin, and we instructed our young daughters, our young young daughters, I am I am witness to this and I I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I was given a reason why abstinence was a good idea. I was given Um, reasons why porn would erode my frontal cortex, uh, what to look for in a potential mate. I don't want to discount the goodness that I gleaned from that season of life, but I also want to point out and critique how it had caused incredible harm. Research shows that many who grew up in the purity movement have the same post-traumatic stress symptoms as those who were sexually abused. I mean, that is terrifying A, a girl who's never been touched, but feels if anything bad happens, it's on her that only dirty things happen to dirty girls, that they did something to deserve it. Again, as you said earlier, we place the onus to escape of power on women and girls more than we invite boys and men to behave justly. So that really formed and shaped my understanding. And honestly, what I did was I, I took that thinking into adult life and into the workforce. So when men would say things to me and comment on my appearance or my dress I thought it on myself, man, I shouldn't have worn this dress today. Mm. I did something to deserve this. So seeing how that really deformed my understanding of self, my understanding of men in the workplace, my understanding of God, and it really can has done so much damage. And I could, I mean, my DMs and my email is just blown up with similar stories, much more egregious than mine, of women who had been malformed in what they believed that their role was and how they operate around men that they should remain small, that they should deny who they are. And especially for women of color, they're also fighting stereotypes, that they're hypersexual, that they're permissive, that they're subservient. And when you add that into thinking that they deserve it, not only that they deserve it, but that they want it, you've really got stereotypes that you're going to see play out in the court of law where men are continually excused. We see it starting in junior high. We see it start, obviously, in educational, institutional settings where Schools don't want to own what's happened on their campuses and their reputation to be marred, so they'll let it go. And then that fraternity culture is taken into adult life.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had Sheila Ray Gregoire and her daughter Rebecca on the show recently talking about some of that research and the evangelical programming that many of us received. Like, I mean, my wife, I'm married to a very strong woman, Enneagram type A. in our pre-marriage counseling, we were watching this VHS video series.
1: Come on now, that's right, you were. And What year was this, hold on, context boo, Well, context. we got married
0: in, uh, oh, this would have been 2005. So already we okay. should have been on DVDs, yes. We should yeah. have been on DVDs, but we were watching VHS tapes, which is perhaps part of the theological problem. Uh, uh. And And video number seven said, dear ladies, now that you are marrying a man, Your purpose is subordinate to his. God's calling for your life is to support your husband's calling. End of conversation.
1: I'm so sorry. Can we just lay hands on your wife? I just, that breaks me. And that's the thing. That's the thing. This, this complementarian, but also a faux egalitarian view permeated that culture and that time and that day, and still to this day, until we have proper Bible scholars, not just pastors and preachers, doing and excavating the the text to give us a great holistic view of reciprocity, we're going to continue to subjugate women in the name of God. That's a, it's devastating. Thankfully,
0: my wife was like, "Oh hell no," <laughs> and and basically her immediate, immediate reaction was, "If that's marriage, then I'm I'm out. Let's yeah. fr- forget about it." But you know we. We we learned reciprocity. Yeah. Sixteen years
1: later, you're still here, so We're that's still good. <laughs>
0: here. Oh man! I, and I'm so glad that I married a strong woman who who helped call me up to this. Like, it's beautiful.
1: Say it again for those in the back. Say it again. Come on. That was too I good. I am that thankful too that I
0: married a strong woman. Like she has called me to a higher standard than anyone in the church called me to. Mm. And I'm wow. glad what for that leadership. for us. But that is a problem for the church. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right? And look what happens when women lead. It's beautiful. When women partner with men, good things happen. We we swing that pendulum again. It's either the Billy Graham or Mike Pence rule where women aren't even allowed into the room to help make those decisions and shape those ideas and shape those policies and culture and way and thinking. But then the other is, you know, where women are seen that they just want to have all the power. And that's not true. You know, I think that feminism has been so co-opted that, and given such a bad rap that, you know, it's just this, we want a Lord over men. No, no, no. We want partnership. If we wanted what men had, we'd have to oppress a lot of people on the way there. No, we want partnership. We want to work together because the inherent value in each other is so glorious. And when we work together, I mean, it is just unstoppable what can be done.
0: Uh, yeah. Did you read Danielle Strickland's book, Better Together?
1: I actually was just on an interview with her last night. We talked for an hour all about this. So it was a. It you was said a... you had
0: friends in Toronto. That's a good I did. <laughs> I do, Very much. Danielle and Cheryl
1: Nemhard. Yeah. I remember.
0: Oh, and Cheryl. Yeah. She's awesome, too. Yeah, uh, da- Danielle was on the show. And, you know, we were talking about the Billy Graham rule, you know, because I've had I've worked in Christian charities most of my life until I became an author and podcaster. And, and I've had these older men say to me, well, the Billy Graham rules never hurt me. It's never let me down. You know, and Danielle's like, because you've got all the power and control. What about all the women that you couldn't effectively mentor because you yeah. weren't willing to engage in any level of mutuality with them because you're afraid that they're some kind of temptress because uh, you haven't actually seen them for who they are. Right there.
1: Mic drop. And I just have to say, the most formative influences in my life have been men who have mentored me, have promoted me, have leveraged their own power and platform and resources and opportunities to advance my place. I've had incredible examples where no impropriety was present. My loyalty wasn't exploited. My reputation wasn't exploited. My body wasn't exploited. It can be done so well. It can be done so well. I mean, I feel like Canada has some great examples that I, I mean, when I think of, especially in government and New Zealand, your home country, your first, your mother country. It, we can do this well. It can be done. And and the proof's in the pudding. I don't want to spoil too much for you since you haven't got to the later chapters of how we can solve this issue. But the GDP would rise by 12 billion if more women were in power. Safer cities are designed when more women are in power. CEOs are less risky in their decision-making when more women are in power and in boardrooms. I mean, it is outrageous, the benefits, not just for women, but for men and women and children, when women hold power.
0: Mm. Yeah, I've read some of that research, especially like with the coming out of the microloans in Africa and and, and the ways that just switching a leadership role to a woman has these diffuse, profound communal benefits. That's right. Let's roll, roll back, though. I wonder, can you talk about the cost to the to the human soul when a woman has to contort herself? um, because of these imbalances, because of these abuses of power, um, you know, playing the game, being fun, smiling at things that are actually toxic.
1: Yeah. I think so many of us are culturally conditioned. And I think for women of color, there's a unique, um, intersection of both race and gender, where we are looking to contort ourselves to the dominant culture, to be accepted, to be seen, we'll often talk or dress or, um, admire or go to the same schools or achieve what dominant culture believes is popular, especially dominant white male culture, because historically they've been the power brokers, the gatekeepers for those of us who want to advance. And as we do, the higher we get, you'd think we'd make more progress. But in reality, many of us are just more conditioned to stay quiet, more conditioned to default to a men's point of view, because why? We want to honor the gatekeepers who let us in. We don't want to lose our proximity to power. We don't want to lose our resources. We don't want to lose everything we've worked so hard to build. I I can think of so many times I was in decision-making rooms and a comment was said where I thought to myself, that is so backwards. That is so destructive. But if I say something, I will lose my place in this room. I will lose my credibility in this room. And I will lose my influence with the rest of this system. Is that a price I want to pay? So I slowly am sitting in this water that's heating up, that's boiling to the point I don't realize I'm burning to death because I'm so con- convinced, I'm so convinced that the price of silence is an act of self-preservation, and I will ultimately benefit. But in reality, it destroys the soul, it detro- it destroys us mentally. I mean, the body keeps a score, it. it destroys us physically. And so many women, especially before we had vernacular to describe our experiences, I mean, we must remember sexism, misogyny, um, sexual misconduct, sexual harassment, sexual assault, those are relatively new terms, although these issues have been happening since day one, since the beginning of time. We really have waited, you know, until the late sixties, early seventies, that was not common vernacular. So women didn't have those words, the language to describe their experience like we do today and being able to name what's happened to you to name your experience, not just be seen as emotional, not just be seen as insecure, because I can't even begin to tell you how many strong women when they brought up an issue, Hey, that was really offensive. They were labeled as insecure and they were never in a decision-making room again just just lost everything by one comment by pushing back even a little bit to that patriarchal structure. So it is it's this internal cost that so many of us pay to be able to stay in the room, but in reality if we want to architect equitable systems, not just one woman but many women and men need to be able to name the situation for what it is and begin to with a humble posture architect systems that are equitable for all. And it requires the bravery of women and allowing others to lend their strength because no woman should have to walk this alone. It is not the victim's responsibility to push the line of justice. It's all of our responsibility to push the line of justice. But then of course, there is a specific role men have in this because this will not change until men see their power, their male, sometimes fragility, dare I say, I hope that's okay to say,
0: Yeah,
1: and be able to own they do have power. And what would it look like to leverage that power? What would it look like to listen to women's experience and then to take action, not just listen vulnerably, but to take action of what they've told you and not just write it off as emotional or write it off as insecure or angry, whatever label we place on whatever woman, depending on her race or her class, and then again, move toward those spaces. And it will, why do we not do this? Because silence demands nothing of us action requires, it could require everything. It could require a little bit. We have to be able to move these spaces because as you said, working in Christian organizations, working in, in mainstream organizations, this is the norm. We have normalized this culture of the patriarchy where women, sometimes we just give up the fight because we don't see a way forward.
0: Yeah. I found, I found it very convicting. There were stories that you share. There was Examples and narrative that you tease out, and there was times where I was like, "Oh man, that reminds I can remember when I said something like that. Mm. I can remember, I can remember the time I asked someone to take notes, oh. and she was offended, and and I didn't understand why she was offended, and we had a and and she spoke up and we and and we spoke about it later, and I you know basically she was like. Why did you choose me to take notes? Why not anybody else in the meeting, including half the men in the meeting? And I had no answer. I, and that was the problem. Like
1: So culturally least. conditioned, that implicit bias.
0: And and that and that was at an end. I had to own that and do that work at that time. But reading through it, you know, I, I think the thing that was so shocking to me because I live and in, in work in this space, and most of what you're describing here to me was not new news. Correct. I think what was shocking to me was as you tease out how complex the system is, the idea that ultimately, practically everybody who breathes has had some form of complicitness in this, right. whether intentionally or not at some stage and it requires every one of us to wake up to that. And, and that was really sobering, but I completely agree with you.
1: Yeah, and the complicity can be anything from asking somebody to take notes in a meeting to what we saw in Atlanta, right? right. Complete complicity into a patriarchal structure to eliminate his, you know quote unquote, eliminate his temptation. So we have this huge spectrum of how complicity plays out. But unless we're willing to excavate our own heart, mind, soul and do this work, we will continually perpetuate these cultures. And you know who's doing a lot of this is women. And I know I'm calling out my own species over here, but truly, I think especially, you know, white women often shape this narrative. And I'm an Indian immigrant woman living in the United States. I I have seen women turn on women and it is a particular kind of harm. Because for many of us, we can name a monster in our life. We can name like, he done did it. This is how it happened. I know this was There's witnesses. But then to have women defend an abuser of power is particularly distressing because it continually upholds this power. And it's a free pass for the man who abuses his power because I couldn't possibly be the monster that you're painting me out to be if other women are going to defend me. It's his first line of defense a man who abuses power. And research shows um, that men who have an ascent to power first in, in patriarchal, evangelical, Christian, religious, honestly, we can broaden that scope, religious settings will often shed the virtues that got them there in the first place. The fruit of the spirit, you will not, you will see less of that and more of those narcissistic tendencies that we often paint as leadership qualities. Their version of events, distorting reality. You are there to serve their agenda. If you're not, you need to get off the bus. Don't rock the boat. This is the will of God. All of those things that we've heard time and time again. But then just across the board, research shows that as you have more access to power and unchecked accountability, truly unchecked accountability, where you believe that you can get away with anything, you see yourself as a man as more sexually desirable and will seek out sexual affairs, misconduct, and of course, not always consensual there is a twisted view of power and one's own sexuality as a man, when there, when power is involved, it is just <laughs> sex, money, sure. power. There's a, there's, there's a reason those are often together. And truly it's, this is not about sex. This is about power. This is about
0: absolutely. power. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, my, my experience as a man uh, <laughs> has at times had different Amounts of power explicitly given in workplace settings and so on completely uh, agree. And even and even for many men, uh, issues of porn come back to power. That's, right. To power. That's and ultimately, right. I mean, we can go even deeper and talk about emotional trauma and why we want power because we're trying to prevent harm to our Like, Yes, you can unravel okay. that whole thing. And if you're looking to heal yourself, you should unravel that whole thing. Come on. Amen. But. Yeah, wow. The, the you you describe you describe in the book how and why this happens with powerful women and the bind that people end up in, where they sort of can't do one thing and can't do another. One one of the aspects of that that really stood out to me was when a powerful woman doesn't speak up. How future women who experience some form of abuse, harassment, assault, whatever, then look at the scenario and go, well so and so interacted with this guy and she never said anything and she's a strong woman so if she said nothing m- am i just going crazy
1: yes it again points the arrow back a victim will blame themselves victim blaming is both external and internal and you know if he i i, I think i the subtitle of that is he's done so much for her and i use the example of larry nasser and how you know, some of the lesser known athletes, a volleyball player who was like, but look, he's the Olympic coat, you know, athletic physician. If he's doing this, it must be okay. Because none of these girls have said anything. Nobody has spoken up. Surely he's done so much for her. I mean, Harvey Weinstein used that same, same line. Look what I did for Gwyneth Paltrow. Do you want all these Academy awards? Do you want to be on the red carpet? Do you want to be a household name?'" do this for me, you know, and, and these women feeling like, what did I do to deserve this? There's something, there must be something inherently in me where I'm, a, I'm, I'm drawing this upon myself. What have I done to deserve it? And when there, again, when other women don't speak up, but every woman is counting her cost. Every woman is thinking of her proximity to power. Every woman is facing self-silencing. If, if in her formative adolescent years, she had parents who silenced her. For a variety of reasons, if a you know a boyfriend took advantage of her, if she tried to speak up when she was younger and felt silent, she's taking that, that belief into adult life that she will not be heard. And then you add onto it the cultural conditioning of NDAs, settlements and payouts and threats that you'll lose your job. I mean, there's just so many reasons that women are silenced, both self-silencing and exterior silencing. But then when we fail to see others speak up bravely. It just begets silence, begets silence and Mm -hmm. bravery begets bravery and courage begets courage.
0: We will take a very quick pause so I can thank all of my patrons. This show is made possible by my monthly and annual supporters on patreon.com. These folks are the most encouraging, wonderful people. They keep me uplifted. They are beta readers for when I've got new material coming out. They, I can, kind of like a sounding board where I can test ideas that I'm working on, test out theology, and they also have access to the B-sides. Each week I put out a B-side to each podcast episode where my friends and I kind of sit down and discuss each episode in detail. And so uh, if you want access to the B-sides, make sure you jump on Patreon. You can get in there for as little as $3 a month or $30 a year. Big shout out to Jill and Fabian, who are my newest patrons. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate having you. If you want to sign up, patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle. Thanks, guys. Let's get back to the show.
1: And so it is, I even think of Dr. Kristen Blasey Ford. You know, she was never intending to testify before the Senate hearing committee against um, Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And a document was leaked, and many people don't know that full story. Even that a was fascinating
0: was when you unpacked that, because again, from I've heard from women, why did if it was that bad, she would have come forward Other early. Women. She's Isn't clearly just trying to tear down a godly man. Yes,
1: yes, and this belief that if if something happened, women would tell right away, and. Tra- that's not how trauma works you know we are usually very frazzled in our trauma and many women until their late 30s early 40s even admit that what happened happened because we don't want to believe that we put ourselves in harm's way so there's just reckoning with what we went through and the way our body stores trauma and in fact the confusion of events and being able to um, communicate them in a frazzled manner is proof of trauma not a dismissal of trauma I mean there's just so much to this and other women who haven't gone through something like that, or who have denied their own trauma and their own microaggressions, aren't going to be the ones to raise a flag. And here's another thing: when it's anything political, we have such a hard time seeing past our own camp, or past our own value system. And this was this was not a political act. And the fact that we demonized it to be one, it was just so was so devastating. This is a graduate professor who knows what she's talking about in Silicon Valley who was just reduced to nothing, still has private security detail to this day, and Kavanaugh's on the bench. So you see how we treat people who come forward. The world was watching, not just Americans, the world was watching how this woman was treated, how she was trending memes of just distorting her face. I mean, it's just terrifying to think about how she was treated. So of course we can't expect a McDonald's worker making minimum wage when she's corralled into the bathroom on her break by her manager to speak up if we're going to treat women who are you know what i mean this trickles down and so we have to be able to build a culture where women are allowed to tell truths that could affect systems because we'd love to believe that a woman did something deserve it because then we can victim blame we can isolate the event we don't have to address the entire complicit system because trauma is a one-two punch the first punch is what happened to her the second is the complicit system saying we should have come forward early if it really happened. Are you sure that even happened? What did you do to deserve it? What were you wearing? How were you walking? Did you lead him on? All those questions that we ask that just heap on shame is that second punch.
0: Yeah. Yeah. For real. Seriously. I, I, have, a, I have a question that I, and I hope this doesn't come in the wrong kind of spirit. Um, I, I absolutely let us keep fostering a world where everyone speaks up and where, as you said, courage begets courage and so on. I was discussing it with my wife and talking about strong women in this situation of, of you know, w- where a strong woman hasn't said something. And my wife was exp- sharing with me her experiences throughout her career. And, and she said to me, it's a really heavy burden for a woman to carry every future woman on her shoulders. Mm. that that in addition to all the other counting the cost that she has to do a woman has to say what about every single woman that comes after me and my wife was saying that that's not to be taken lightly but that also feels like like when has any man had to think oh what about the men who come after me right like that's not a thing that happens in our brains yeah And, and so I wonder I wonder if you have thoughts on the on heaviness. I definitely heaviness?
1: do. Yeah. And this goes back to the w- what I said earlier. It is not the victim's responsibility. And in this case, we're talking about women. It is not a woman's responsibility solely to carry this. It's not. This is why Pray tell, is written for the bystander. because I was a bystander in my situation. Uh, yes, I experienced the harassment, but not to the degree that others in the system did and it was this moment of not my circus not my monkeys or do i have a moral ethical and christian obligation to do something to lend my strength mm-hmm. in a way and to invite others to lend their strength in a way that could bring wholeness and reconciliation and healing and and compensation and redress for this system particularly and i think going back to what your wife said she's right it is not on those who've experienced the harm to fix it sadly the oppressed have been the one to march and demand that the dominant power players of their time and of their space and of their world bend toward justice. But we have to be able to architect a space where it's not the powerful and the powerless. We have to level that. And that's, again, what Pray Tell is all about. But demanding that it's on the victim to carry that burden alone is, is the reason we haven't had the forward movement we'd hoped to, honestly. Mm.
0: Yeah, thanks. That's good. That's really, that's a really good clarification. One thing that you touched on uh, earlier was the intersectionality of this, right? That like, I know a lot of spaces that I spend time in, there's an awareness that feminism has really only done things for white women. And, you know, so you have the mujeristas and womanist voices and, and other pieces being added to this. But I think the example that you use that, that I'd love to hear you unpack more is the difference in treatment between someone like R. Kelly And Harvey Weinstein, because I remember hearing about R. Kelly, like, like five or six years ago, just like rumors, but nothing like Harvey Weinstein.
1: Yeah. I mean, isn't it wild when we think of (laughs) when you think of R. Kelly, it took lifetime, a cable channel making like trashy movies for women to do an expose on this guy for the Department of Justice and the FBI and different states to get involved. I mean, we're talking about edutainment, you know, like being the driving force, women's, women created content. And so, you know, everyone experiences this. Every woman experiences this as if we've definitely already laid that foundation, but the response is varied depending on your class and on your race, on your age, on your immigration or citizenship status is all is varied. So, you look at R. Kelly, and we're talking about underage girls that he had in this harem that he lured in at concerts, and their parents are trying to get them back and get a hold of them. And they don't even know where they are. And the authorities won't help them because the girls don't want to come home. They've been, you know, just brainwashed into his way of thinking and doing things.
0: And if I can just, we say underage, which is accurate, but I mean, I think in some cases they were children.
1: Yes, underage. Yes, they're children. They were children. I mean, we're talking. 12, 13, 14-year-old girls. This is terrifying stuff. And, and it's estimated that over a 1,000 people who knew R. Kelly knew what he was doing. We're talking everybody from music, industry, marketing executives, down to craft services, making sure the bagels and cream cheese were on set for his music videos. A lot of people knew what he was doing. And when it finally came out, first of all, the fact that nobody was willing to be like, this is wrong. I don't care that you're a cultural icon. This is wrong. That's a problem. Why? Because he made money. You see the response to his victims was, don't speak up against your own community. How dare you a- attack this man of our time who's an R&B legend? Um, what are you doing for the black community? I mean, just all, just demonizing these, we're taking a like Ben, like you said, children. We're, we're demonizing these children and punishing them. For finally getting the bravery and just being able to escape that toxic culture and even their own families turning against them for speaking up against R. Kelly and the public, of course. And then you have Harvey Weinstein, The you know Gwyneth Paltrow and Ashley Judd and Rose McGowan are seen as heroes of the Me Too movement. And they are resourced. They have a voice. They have a platform. They're well-known. They're household names. Their treatment has been outrageously different. Now, the harm isn't different. They, the, both of these women experienced outrageous harm. They, they were afraid for their lives and their livelihood and their future and their reputations and their bodies. And that is egregious. But the idea that white women have shaped this and women of color have always been seen as either hypersexual, as I mentioned earlier, or deserving or subservient is, is really halted societal sympathy and empathy necessary for them to get the healing that they need. And it is it is one that I pray that resourced women would see as how can I leverage this? Because at the same time that R. Kelly and Harvey Weinstein, when that was hitting national news, that very same time, this McDonald's case where thousands of women in a class action lawsuit came against their employers and McDonald's still to this day isn't held liable for all the harassment and misconduct that's happened on their premises right. of their franchises. That's been happening to low-wage earning women who they, 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 they got to ship to work. They got to feed their babies. You know, I think of one case where it was a mother and daughter both worked at McDonald's and they lived together. And, and then the daughter had a baby as well. So she's you got grandma and, and mom and baby. And both of them are being fondled and harassed and groped while they're trying to take a Big Mac order. But they feel like, what can I do? Mm. I, how am I, I going to feed my kids? How am I going to pay my light bill? So we have... Just the way we even react class-wise is uh, particularly painful. But when you see specifically Black women treated so poorly, you think of Anita Hill, you think of obviously R. Kelly's victims, and the list goes on and on. Uh, The term Moya Bailey, um, a scholar, she calls it misogynor. This misogyny against the Black community is particularly painted in this revisionist view where women again somehow deserve it even more, or that they are inherently worth less, therefore there's not as cause for
0: concern. Yeah, yeah, wow. I'm really, I'm yeah. I, again, that your work is so thorough, and you you really dismantle each of these bits and pieces so well. for For those again who just don't know yet, the book is called Pray Tell: Why We Silence Women Who Tell the Truth and How Everyone Can Speak Up." the The first section is sort of like why this happens and then again to how it happens and and again it's just so illustrative in terms of all the ways intentional but especially unintentional just cultural formation things that are normative for us but that are wrong um so i haven't got into the final third yet so i i haven't heard you lay out uh how we can start speaking up so i I want everyone to buy the book, but I'd love if you can give me what's a a preview or a trailer of what I'm going to find once I get to the the last third.
1: Well, I'll tell you what—it's encouraging, and it really points back to Jesus' encounter with women and how we have evidence that He not only wanted their salvation, of course, but He protected their reputation and their bodies. We often see His physical protection, His His intent to protect their reputation, even if it put Him in harm's way. You think of the woman caught in adultery—the fact that He aptly Put in his own bystander intervention that we see, you know, executed in the military and, and universities. He went in the moment. He disrupted the situation. And we're talking, you know, before we see something on CNN or BBC News, we could be part of the answer. And it could be so simple that sometimes we're willing to overlook it. When we laugh at at coarse joking, when we turn the other way, when we see a little bit of imbalance or impropriety. We don't have to do those things. We don't have to laugh it off. We don't have to walk away thinking this is just the way it is. If we see something, we can walk in the middle and just change the situation. I'm going to give you an example. Let's say Doug and Rosie. Maybe they're at their water cooler. Maybe they're in, there in the foyer at church. I don't know. But you notice Doug is kind of posturing. He's got kind of a dominant voice. And Rosie's darting her eyes. And you're like, it's not right here. You go and hey, Rosie, I had something on the coffee machine. Did you want to Did you want to go check that? I wanted to fill you in on a meeting that we have later. Just disrupt the situation. Just Change the subject. And then you go back to Doug later and say, Hey, Doug, did you see how you came across to Rosie? I don't think she really appreciated that. Doug's been sane. Doug's on watch. And then we go to Rosie, say, I might be totally off base. But were you uncomfortable in that? Being able to lend your eyes and lend your presence in that moment before something kicks off. I'm talking about pre, before we're talking about the, the vision of what could be, just preventing it. She might say, I don't, I don't, I don't feel uncomfortable with that. Or she might break down and be like, he's been hounding me for months and I'm so uncomfortable around him. Or he took advantage of me and I don't know what to do. Or it could be nothing. And you say, Rosie, I'm always here. If you need to go to HR with somebody, if you need to go talk to, we need to go talk to an elder. If you need to call the police, I want you to know I'm here for you. Because the, one of the main reasons women don't speak up is because they don't have somebody to go the journey with them. Mm -hmm. They don't have somebody to walk alongside them. And again, the bystander, we have a role to play. But Now that these things already have happened, what do we do? First, we must lament. We have to lament that this is even happening. Denial is part of the problem. You think of Bill Hyvels, Carl Lentz, Robbie Zacharias, Andy Savage, the list goes on. And what's our first reaction? Oh, that could have never happened. My guy could never do that. Why? Because if somebody's been generous, benevolent, and kind, it's a dissonant position to believe that they are both capable of good and evil, Mm -hmm. but to accept that they are capable of good and evil. And so just reconciling that and grieving that harm happens. Interior, collectively, grieving, we must lament. Without that act of lament, we cannot walk this out for righteousness. We can't walk this out where women will be valued. After we lament, we have to listen. So many women will not speak up because those who are listening will shame them. Mm -hmm. They'll ask those questions like, what were you wearing? Where were you? But what did you say first? We'll find a way to victim blame as we listen to her. So, to withhold judgment, because what happens is we often provide how we think we would have acted in a moment of a microaggression or trauma or some sort of experience where there was an imbalance of power. We respond to her with how we think we would have acted rather than her lived experience with her own formation and thoughts and feelings and and freeze response or flight response of how she acted in the moment. We must not trump up our what we would have done in theory over what she actually lived through. So to consider our body language, consider our facial expressions, truly listen without trying to solve it, without trying to make it smaller than it is, but just simply listening. We're not looking for evidence. We're not trying to downplay it. We're not trying to be outraged. We're letting her tell her story because there's an act of healing just in being able to talk about it. Yeah. And the next, we have to learn how these things happen because they're going to continue to happen unless, as we've talked about so much in our, in our conversation, unless we're willing to do the work. And then lastly, we have to pursue love as justice in the, in the faith community specifically, we're so quick to offer forgiveness without pursuing justice. And we serve a God of justice. We serve a savior of justice. Again, same side of the coin. And often forgiveness is given without repentance. Mm where there's no evidence that this person wants or will change, but we're told to just forgive and move on because we'd love for there to be an ex- short expiry date on a woman's pain because we don't wanna deal with that. We we haven't created systems to walk her through her wholeness. Therefore, I decide that you're not struggling and you need to get over it. So to truly pursue justice for all, I believe it was Dr. Cornell West who said, um, love out loud, love in public is justice. So truly, mm-hmm. if it's calling the police, if it's going to an elder, pursuing justice for all, not just for the perpetrator.
0: So good. So good, Tiffany. Friends, uh, make sure you go and grab this book. It'll be linked in the show notes. Tiffany, where can people find out more about you and your work?
1: Yeah, everything is at tiffanybloom.com, B-L-U-H-M. You can read the first chapter for free. You can listen to the first chapter for free. You can see the book club guide. You can watch the trailer, all the good stuff, links to your favorite mainstream and indie
0: retailers. Tiffany, would you you pray for us as we seek to put ourselves into this and be responsible?
1: Yeah. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God of Rahab, Tamar, and Deborah. God of Mary Magdalene. God of the adulterous woman. You are a God of redemption and wholeness. You're one who uplifts You came and sent your son to move the moral arc of the universe toward justice. This was the freedom and liberation you spoke of, both individual and societal. And Lord, would you both enrage and empower us to play our role in human history? One of goodness and righteousness. One that enables women to be the voice, to be the leaders. To be the mothers and the daughters and the sisters and simply the human beings that you created. Not to be complicit in systems that tear down, but enabling ones that uplift goodness and reciprocity. This is your command. These are your marching orders. Let us never weaponize or twist scripture to fit our view or agenda to play small. Let us not give in to the idea that silence is acceptable when silence is violence but let us use our voice, let us lend our strength, let us walk alongside our sisters and our brothers to bring heaven to earth. We love you. Have your way in our lives. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you, Tiffany. Friends, go check the show notes. You will find links to order Tiffany's very important book, Pray Tell why we silence women who tell the truth and how everyone can speak up and i gotta be honest i've been looking at i've been reading this book and i've been looking at it sitting on my on my table in the living room and it only just occurred to me right now what the title means (laughs) because even though i knew the spelling wasn't pray tell like p-r-a-y like pray tell what are you trying to say it didn't really click until about 45 seconds ago that it's talking about prey predators and prey Uh, so i hope that occurred to everyone else sooner than it did to me but there you go now you know the truth so thankful for tiffany thankful for her work go follow her on instagram twitter facebook tiffany bloom bluhm everything's in the show notes of course as well as the transcription friends i'm excited to keep doing this week by week we've got a wonderful episode scheduled for next week all about depression last week we had morgan Harper nichols on the show in january i wasn't totally sure how much longer i wanted to continue with the podcast i was just tired but somehow uh we got into a thrilling new series of episodes and i am just loving it i'm having a wonderful time i have no (laughs) i have no desire to not keep going a lot of that is thanks to your feedback and your support so thank you everybody much love You'll find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok even, at Jonathan Puddle. Much love. We'll catch you next week.